Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This past weekend yielded even more megatons of cinematic force than anyone could have imagined. I'm Jeff Braun. I'll review half of Barbenheimer, and we'll take a look at the recently concluded Marvel's Secret Invasion. Also, I've got a review of Season 3, Volume 2 of The Witcher, which is now out on Netflix, and it's time to take another peek into the bird box. I didn't have time to get to two movies, so Barbie will have to wait until next week, but I did go this week to see Oppenheimer. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Detonator's charged. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can. Three, two, one. Oppenheimer in theaters this summer. Now, first off, I should point out that I saw this on a regular screen. No IMAX branded screenings for me. And I don't feel like I missed anything, although the people that did see it on a bigger screen say it's absolutely worth it. Uh, I thought there was just one scene that was kind of spectacular enough to warrant that sort of thing. And it didn't even actually feel that spectacular, to be honest. But maybe if I had seen it in IMAX, I'd feel differently. Nevertheless, my point is it's a great movie, even on a regular size screen. It's a three hour biopic about a scientist that we probably all knew the name of and what his main accomplishment in life was inventing the nuclear bomb but if you're like me you probably knew literally nothing about the man going in it's not a cradle to the grave kind of biopic and thank god for that those usually have a really boring 30 minutes at the beginning of whoever it's about being a child this is not that and frankly what christopher nolan has crafted is pretty amazing um he is anyone who's seen any of his movies well knows cannot bring himself to tell a straightforward linear story and so we get three timelines running concurrently through the movie one of which is in black and white the color scenes are uh, of Oppenheimer's perspective. The black and white is not. Though these or through these timelines, we see the relevant part of Oppenheimer's life as it pertains to the Manhattan Project, which was the development of the world's first nuclear bomb, which would, of course, be used against Japan at the end of World War II. So we see the development of the ideas involved in creating such a thing, the actual project, and then, of course, the aftermath and how it affected Oppenheimer and the world at large. He, of course, is credited with making the bomb, but obviously he didn't get much say in how it was used, and there's a lot of material covering that aspect. There's a lot of material in the movie, period. It's incredibly dense. It is mostly men in suits talking, scientists and politicians, and it doesn't do much in the way of hand-holding. Although Matt Damon, as a military general, does a great job at dishing out exposition, he's here to entertain us, and entertain us he does. He feels kind of like he's in a different movie a lot of the time, but his final scene is maybe the most touching moment in the what's otherwise a pretty cold movie. Again, Nolan has has been never been much for uh, conveying human emotions in his movie. No matter how hard, you know, Matthew McConaughey may cry. We'll talk about that a little bit later, probably. The real magic trick that Nolan pulls off here, though, is that his three-hour biopic featuring scientists and senators is maybe the most gripping movie I've seen this year. The editing and the score by Ludwig Goranson propel the movie at a terrific pace. It just flew by. It's maybe the fastest three hours I've seen maybe ever, certainly in a long time. 
the final hour uh, is being called boring by some, and I was starting to feel that way myself, but then either I caught my second wind or Nolan and company did and uh, found a way down the home stretch to keep me engaged. It's really an impressive feat given the degree of difficulty for something like this, and the box office receipts have been the proof. Uh, if we had said in January that this super long biopic about a scientist would be one of the most exciting movies of the year and make a ton of money, you would have said we were crazy, yet here we are. So while we have Nolan doing the best version of the good things he does, it's not all a home run. Uh, frankly, I, like I said, I think he snowed everyone on the IMAX hype just because he likes using it, uh, but it, maybe I'm missing something again. I just didn't see the need for this in IMAX. And the thing that is supposed to be incredible, I just didn't think it was that incredible. But again, maybe I'd change my mind if I had seen it in IMAX. Nolan historically has not shined when it comes to writing women characters, and that's again the case here. Emily Blunt has one amazing scene, but otherwise has very little to do as Oppenheimer's wife. Florence Pugh is a little more interesting, but she's barely in it. Killian Murphy, of course, is a star, and I'd say he's got to be your Oscar frontrunner right now. He's got, you know, he's got a distinct look. He like he always looks like Killian Murphy, but somehow he disappeared into Oppenheimer's skin, and I, that's what I thought. It's tremendous work. He's a conflicted man grappling with unleashing a godlike destructive force on the world. The rest of the cast is... I don't even know where to start. There are multiple Oscar-winning actors who show up for one or two small scenes and just crush it. There's a mile-long line of that guys that at one point made me wonder if I would literally recognize every single face in the movie. Um, there's Josh Hartnett in From the Wilderness turning out a great performance. There's David Crumholtz from Numbers as the most likable guy in the movie. There's Robert Downey Jr. as a guy you're not sure about. He's probably a jerk and uh, just showing no trace of Tony Stark whatsoever, which in its Itself is a pretty big accomplishment simply given how much time we've seen him as Tony Stark and Iron Man over the past 15 years. Um, I'll also save you the trouble by pointing out that the reason the guy playing Einstein looks familiar is because he was a guy that was Emily's dad on Friends in the episodes where they went to England for Ross's wedding. I spent all three hours trying to figure out why I knew that what who that guy was. <laughs> uh, there's obviously a ton of science talk. There are a lot of big ideas. There's a lot of political ideas about World War II, obviously but also the future and communism and the Cold War. Like I said, it's very dense. It flies right along. So as much as I enjoyed it the first time around, I'm excited to see it a second time because uh, I, I, I know there's stuff I just didn't pick up initially. There's just so much there. But I mean, uh, in the end, after biffing it, with Tenet, Christopher Nolan seems to be right back on his game. I'm going to give Oppenheimer four couch cushions out of five. And like I said, uh, we'll get that Barbie review next week. How was the sound mix? The sound mix was fine. There was I, I could understand everything that was being said. No problem. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that we've discussed before, but in case you've missed it, that was my, especially my big problem with Tenet. And I think it, to a lesser extent, uh, Jeff. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I could, I just, I couldn't make out anything and I within 30 minutes I had no idea what was going on so I just gave up on that movie and I refused to go back and watch it with uh, <laughs> subtitles just out of spite but you you and you taught we, we, you mentioned Matthew McConaughey and we will get into that in a couple of minutes but the we talked about it last week the fact that we've got these two movies that have formed this this phenom phenomenon they're calling Sorry, the phenom. That's the Undertaker in the world wrestling. Uh, WWE, they call it the phenom. And I've been watching old wrestling videos. It's not phenom, but phenomenon known as Barbenheimer. <laughs> and they... Or Oppenharby. 
Bob and Harvey. I kind of like that as well. But the <laughs> the, the expectations were destroyed. Oh, like, yeah. They were predicting about 100 mil for Barbie, 50 million for Oppenheimer. Barbie opens with $162 million. And didn't they actually change? Because I've been sort of unplugged this week. I've been off from, my, from work. But uh, I think I initially saw $155 million for Barbie and like 80 for Oppenheimer. And now it's the weekend gross was 162 for Barbie yeah. and 82.4 for Oppenheimer. And Barbie's already at a staggering $472 million worldwide. And Oppenheimer, no slouch, $220 million. Again, this is a rated R three-hour biopic about something that's really not fun. No, uh, I should also point out it wasn't as much as it's well, something very serious and not fun. It's also not as heavy as you might think it's yeah. going to be. It's a bit more entertaining and a little bit lighter. And yeah, so so because I thought that too going in it was like, oh, this is going to be dark and depressing, but it wasn't that bad. Okay, all right. So looking forward to the Barbie review. I just couldn't bring myself to drag myself off of the couch, but maybe <laughs> I'll get get out to see one of them. But what I did, it did inspire me to watch something else. That I have didn't realize I was 10 years behind on. So I'll tell you that next. You're listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Just got the review of Oppenheimer, courtesy of Jeff Braun. Recap, Jeff. What did you give Oppenheimer? Four couch cushions out of five. There we go. So Oppenheimer, of course, just directed by Christopher Nolan. That inspired me to finally watch a Christopher Nolan movie that I never got around to watching. I've seen most of his movies. There are a handful of his earliest films that I haven't seen, but most of his primary filmography, starting with Memento, love that movie. Insomnia, that was okay. Batman Begins, great. The Prestige, great. The Dark Knight, excellent. Inception, I think that's excellent. But Jeff, did you say in recent weeks you hate that movie? Inception? Yeah. Um, every time I watch it, I like it less and less. Yeah? Yeah, it's really weird. I it's don't a, know why. It, it's, it's kind of a pretentious movie, that's for sure. And it's been many <laughs> years since I've seen it, so maybe I might li- like it less. The Dark Knight Rises, good, not great. Dunkirk, mostly good. Tenet, we just talked about it. I think it sucked. I hate it. It's stupid. But there's one in there that I've always meant to watch. Finally did. From 2014... The aforementioned Matthew McConaughey crying movie, Interstellar. This world's a treasure. It's been telling us to leave for a while now. Your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on Earth. You're the best pilot we ever had. Get out there and save the world. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. So I don't think I never I ever got around to this because it's almost a three-hour runtime, and because it wasn't universally praised, seventy-three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And I thought if I'm going to sit through a three-hour movie, it had better be well liked. Ron, I can't remember. Did you see Interstellar? I did see Interstellar in theaters. I. Do not recall almost anything from the movie. I walk around telling people I don't like it, but I honestly can't remember what I really... <laughs> I, I mean, I remember that I wasn't blown away by it or nothing. I think there's a, a section in this movie where time is screwy, you know what I mean? Where yeah. all of a sudden it's like, how long were you gone? And it's like, and it's years. And that hurt my brain to the point where I just don't think I recovered from it. <laughs> yeah. the, time, the time stuff was a little bit uh, difficult, but... I've always been curious, and as it turns out, I mostly loved this movie. Set in the year 2067, 
from what I understand, because that's never explicitly stated in the film from what I could tell. The world has been devastated by something simply called the blight. It's eradicated pretty much all of our crops except for corn. The population has been decimated. There are no more militaries, just farmers growing corn, trying to keep the world alive. But it is dying. Secretly, there's a group looking to go into deep space to find a new planet. And that's where Matthew McConaughey comes in. He's a corn farmer. He has a son, has a daughter, has a father-in-law, but he's a former astronaut and he gets recruited to pilot the mission and off he goes into deep space. This movie did what most movies and programs failed to do for me when I watched them at home. It actually grabbed my attention and held it for three hours. I just left my phone alone and watched the movie. It's got amazing performances, extraordinary visuals. It was the 2015 winner for Best Achievement in visual effects, and I get why, because some of the stuff that we see in space, well, there's like a scene of a black hole, and this wasn't just something they conjured up out of their imagination. Apparently it was all based on actual science and scientific theory, and the difficulty in creating these images. It took like 100 hours to render one frame on he just screen. loves doing things the difficult way. I know. <laughs> nothing is easy with Christopher Nolan. But it, it pays off. The visuals are remarkable. And as Braun pointed out, it gets a little goofy at the end with the science. But everything in the movie is based on something that has at least been theorized. It's not just a couple of guys sitting around at 1 a.m. slamming yeah, yeah. some beers and like, how are we going to finish this movie? <laughs> uh, but it, and it, it's... I think part of the reason why it gets a little goofy as well is it's all theoretical science that we don't really understand, so it's kind of tough to blame them for that. And they took a shot, and ultimately, even though this was a story about space travel and trying to save our planet, it was the story of a father and his love for his children, particularly his daughter, Murph. I will point out that John Lithgow is in it. If you've never seen this movie, I don't want to mention the rest of the supporting cast because there were some genuine surprises in there for me oh yeah, yeah. i was like oh that look at the transition they just did there from young person to older person yep. and i would didn't even know this guy was in it uh so i'm just gonna leave it there I, and i think it has a it had a pretty neat ending overall so good supporting cast great musical score from Hans simmer overall i think great movie four couch cushions out of five i found it on netflix maybe it's one of those movies where had i gone to see it on the big screen it would have been more annoyed with it, but well, the be. fact that I watched at home. Sometimes you watch these movies at home, you're like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. fine. Yep. I, I, knowing what, what you've just said and that you liked it, I, I should give this thing another chance. I never re. I've thought about rewatching it. I can't bring myself to do it, but now I'm kind of excited about it. And by the way, in case you're curious about what's new at the movies this weekend. It's a haunted weekend at the movies. Let's start with a family-friendly one. It's Disney's latest adaptation of its classic amusement park icon, Haunted Mansion. I should warn you, before you step inside the house, this could change the course of your entire life. I'm not afraid of a couple ghosts. <laughs> you say that now. 20 years ago, Eddie Murphy starred in The Haunted Mansion, and it stunk. So now we've got a new one, starring Lakeith Stanfield, Rosario Dawson, Tiffany Haddish, Owen Wilson, and Danny DeVito. This mansion is unhinged. <laughs> These ghosts definitely don't want to leave. 
death lurks around every corner. It's about a haunted mansion. There are lots of ghosts. It looks fun. It looks silly. Not getting the best reviews, but better than Eddie Murphy's. This house is dripping with souls, but there's always room for one more. Now the real scary movie is getting amazing reviews. It's called Talk To Me. I'll do it. Cannot go for more than 90 seconds. Am I clear? What happens after 90 seconds? Don't want to stay. It's about young people having fun, trying to communicate with the dead, this time by shaking hands with an embalmed hand. But they go too far and unleash terrifying supernatural forces upon the world. It looks great. Put your hand on it. Now say, talk to me. Talk to me. Bang, ghosts, and just, we got 20 <laughs> seconds here, but once again, you got stuck watching a scary movie trailer. What was it before Oppenheimer? Was it the new Exorcist movie? It was the new Exorcist movie, and even t like a minute into the trailer, I was like, oh, this looks like it might be a sequel for The Exorcist. I don't know how I sussed that out myself, but I did. And speaking of Barbenheimer, the next big Barbenheimer thing, there, I heard somebody online trying to get started at the end of September. There's a Paw Patrol movie coming out, <laughs> and the return of another horror fr franchise, so maybe in September we're going to get... Saw Patrol. <laughs> You're listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Still to come, i got to tell you about a big one that is arriving on Netflix this week and another little movie that may have slipped past your radar also on Netflix. It's actually a follow-up from one of their biggest hits ever. But before that, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I've got a bit of a bone to pick this week with the MCU. Well, we'll find out in a moment what your uh, bone picking is all about. The latest MCU show on Disney Plus, Secret Invasion, wrapped up this week. Where is everybody? Locked away. Looks like it's just you and me, Fury. All our pills. That's a shame, isn't it? No more protection for you. How about a drink instead? I wouldn't say no. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> to the last stand of the great Nick Fury. The six-episode series Secret Invasion featured Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury, who I guess is now the longest-running character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and his fight against some evil aliens bent on taking over the planet. We've seen the aliens before in Captain Marvel. They're called Skrulls, and there are good ones and bad ones. The good ones here played by Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, who we've seen before, and Amelia Clark as his daughter Gaia. Don Cheadle reprised his role as Rhodey. I guess that character showed up in Iron Man 1, just like Nick Fury, so he's also the longest running character in the MCU. Kingsley Bandadier played Gravik, who we heard in the clip, the leader of the Bad Scrolls, and we also got to see Olivia Coleman, Christopher McDonald, Kobe Smulders, Dermot Mulroney, and others. And like most of the MCU shows, it just wasn't terribly exciting. It's weird that they can't really figure that out. It also might be that we've just seen so many of these shows and movies that unless they have some crazy gimmick like WandaVision had, that it's all just pretty predictable. And there were no stakes. We knew full well the world wasn't about 
to be overrun by aliens, so there wasn't a lot of tension. The only thing it really had going for it in that regard was that the Skrulls are shapeshifters, so literally any character on screen could have secretly been an alien, and a lot of them were. And the finale did some fake-outs along those lines, but then wrapped up pretty tidy. The good news was it was only half an hour long, and they didn't waste a lot of time getting to the point. Um, I don't think it's the worst MCU show we've ever seen, nor is it the best, just somewhere in the middle. But again, none of these shows have been spectacular. I've rewatched all the MCU movies several times. I've never once had uh, the slightest desire to rewatch one of these Disney Plus shows. Maybe I'd try to rewatch Loki before season two comes out in October, but even then, I think I'd first look for a YouTube video that condenses all the important plot points to 20 minutes or something like that. I don't know. It was Secret Invasion. It was okay. What do you think, Brett? Meh. Yeah. Meh. First episode I thought was cool, and it looked like, okay, they're introducing us into this kind of spy craft intrigue. It's not so much a CG blow them up thing it, it looks like it's going to be a good show and the rest of the episodes had some cool elements and i will admit the finale has this big fun fight that also has pretty major implications regarding the vast strength of one of the characters which i won't spoil but they had better not leave that as a dangling plot thread moving forth in the movies like for example remember that giant celestial that started to emerge from the ocean at the end of Eternals back in 2021. Oh, yes. Has that been talked about once in the MCU? Oh, I seem to, th I can't remember if I read a thing where they complained, they said the same complaint that they didn't, or if there was maybe one reference to it that was, and it wasn't even like a obvious reference. It was like you had to be really paying attention to, oh, that's what they're talking about. But yeah, no. Yeah. Like you can see that thing from space and clearly <laughs> it, who knows how big it is of it is left underwater. Right. You'd think that that would be throwing the earth's gravity, like that would throw us off of our Orbit. gravitational pull and out of orbit. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, they better not leave that out because it was a huge reveal and it was pretty cool. But I just, I found like Nick Fury is somewhat reduced here. Like throughout the MCU, he's always been either the puppet master or the guy who is always dependable. He's always ahead. He's always one step ahead, two steps ahead, three steps ahead. But in this, I felt like he was made to look weak, incompetent, foolish at times. And ultimately, I didn't feel like it really resolved anything. It just laid more groundwork. And that's all these Marvel projects seem to be doing now is just laying groundwork for something down the road. I did like the bad guy, Gravik, the aforementioned Kingsley Ben Adir. He's got this big emotional scene in the finale that I thought was terrific and quite explosive. And I'm excited to see more of this actor. He's uh, starring in an upcoming, upcoming biopic of Bob Marley. And Jeff, you actually mentioned you were watching a... Uh, Einstein, who plays Einstein in Oppenheimer, and you spent three hours trying to figure that yeah. out. When I watched this trailer, I saw it. I saw it ahead of Mission Impossible, and it was dr instantly driving me insane because I thought, I know the guy who's playing Bob Marley. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Oh, who is he? And it was this guy. And I, then I remember that it was Gravik from Secret Invasion before Mission Impossible started, so I wasn't worried about that. But uh, yeah, it turns out he's got quite an extensive filmography already. I've only seen him in Secret Invasion. He was in Barbie over the weekend, so he's got a bright future ahead of him. Also, how the heck did this series cost $212 million? Like, Christopher Nolan made Oppenheimer for half that amount. So as I watch this show, like I've mentioned, there's, there are some okay action scenes. There's a big CG thing in the finale. And, of course, all the scrolls and the shape-shifting. That's some CG. But 
Uh, it's got a big cast, but there's nobody commanding $50 million salaries here. No, I wouldn't think so. I do hope that Samuel L. Jackson is getting paid a ton at this point. Cause he's been with this series for like, like I said, since the beginning, he was in, he's not in the Iron Man movie. He shows up after the credits, of course, famously in that first tag scene. Yeah. So anyway, I just, I, I'm sorry. It's just, it's all about churning out content, not making quality content. So overall, I just, I didn't hate it. I'm just disappointed yeah. once again. There you go. Um, I did check out a popular, well, one of the least popular MCU movies this week, as it turns out, and it was related to this, and it was, of course, Captain Marvel. Excuse me, miss. Why are you dressed for laser tag? Oh, boy. You guys don't have any clue, do you? I'm here to stop the shapeshifters that are infiltrating your planet. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Captain Marvel. You know you're glowing, right? Rated PG-13. I don't want to relitigate all the merits or demerits of this movie. I know Brie Larson is a bit of a polarizing figure in the MCU. I like her just fine as Captain Marvel, but I know I might be in the minority there. Nevertheless, I actually always enjoyed this one. I like all the 90s stuff. It's set in 1995, and it's got a detective story vibe to it as Nick Fury and Sam Jackson investigate the beginning of the Skrulls on Earth story, as it turns out. I popped it on because I wanted to see if it helped me connect more to the Secret Invasion show, which is more or less you know, a sequel without Captain Marvel. But uh, I've always thought Captain Marvel was a fun watch for me. Um, and what I really noticed this time that I don't think we ever talk about is the de-aging of Sam Jackson in the movie. They need to shave 25 years off his face. And I think it might be the best example of doing this. Uh, better than Indiana Jones. Way better than Robert De Niro in The Irishman in 2019. So, And it's even more impressive, I think, when you consider how much uh, Sam Jackson is in the Captain Marvel movie. He's got to be in 75% of all the scenes. A lot more than those guys in those other movies as far as the de-aging went. Uh, and the best compliment I can pay the movie is that it wasn't distracting. After a couple minutes, I actually forgot that he was considerably older uh, in real life than he was uh, the guy we were watching on screen. So the MCU did get that one right. They can do the de-aging. Up next, got to tell you about The Witcher, a new bird box, and Jeff says goodbye at least to the latest season of one of his favorites. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Got to turn our attention once again to Netflix because this week it debuted Thursday, July 27th. The Witcher Season 3, Volume 2 is now available. We decide how we move forward. We will be the last to fall. Of that I am sure. I will make them pay. So Volume 1 came out in June with the first five episodes of the eight-episode season. Henry Cavill plays a monster hunter in a swords and magic kind of fantasy world. He's the best part of the show by far, but it does have some other great elements, like the cinematography is stunning, and the visual effects are really good, especially when they mix in visual effects elements into the cinematography. Some good supporting characters, some interesting-ish fantasy kind of power struggle stuff. Though in the way that they use magic in the show is a little different than other shows, so it feels unique. Season 3, Episode 5, so that was the final episode of Volume 1, to me was the best episode of the series to that point. And after having watched the final three episodes of Season 3... That statement remains. Season 3 peaked in that episode. The final three episodes are good, not great, which is kind of how I feel about the series overall. 
And it was bittersweet watching these episodes, knowing that Henry Cavill is out and Liam Hemsworth takes over next season. And I went into that in greater detail in past episodes. But Cavill did get to do some cool fight scenes in those final three episodes, including one big bad fight in the final. But it was a mixed bag of emotions again because I enjoyed watching the commitment that he always brought to the action and was sad knowing that that's it. He's gone. I will say this. Episode six hits the ground running with some major story developments. Episode seven is an interesting but weird episode devoted almost entirely to one character and episode eight had some terrific action but again the whole thing it's just underwhelming i was hoping for more resolution to the stories introduced to this season but we're not even close and now cavill is gone so meh. but anyway the watcher season three volume two out now on netflix and a new movie debuted on netflix recently to follow in the footsteps of one of the platform's biggest releases of all time in 2018 sandra bullock starred in a movie called bird box it was huge for the platform it wasn't a great movie but it was huge and now as of july 14th 2023 we have a new movie in this world bird box barcelona so let's just recap the first one earlier in 2018 a movie came out called a quiet place set in a dystopian world where monsters have invaded and they hunt by sound so if you make any noise they will find you and kill you in Bird Box, there are demonic beings who have invaded, whom if you see them, they will infect your mind, and then you'll kill yourself. So kind of sense-swapped similar films, reportedly just a coincidence because Bird Box is based on a book, so it's not copycatting, but the similarities seem to help give it some momentum, I think, and it does remain one of the biggest releases Netflix ever had, and it was just not a great movie. 64% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it was just overhyped. Sandra Bullock had to lead her child to a safe haven, but has to do it blindfolded, so that's a scary prospect, and I loved the idea, but and, and the concept is great, it just relied too heavily on flashbacks and the story structure ended up being clunky and kind of boring. But when I saw there was a new one coming from Barcelona, I thought, why not check it out? I like uh, the way the Europeans do things with storytelling. So here's a snip of that. Stay close. Who's there? Nos vamos. Correr. These things take our fears and twist them. So Bird Box Barcelona, and by the way, mixed bag of languages, as you've heard, we've got English, we've got Spanish and German, but Bird Box Barcelona centers on a father and his daughter just trying to stay alive and avoid getting attacked by other survivors. Turns out I liked this one more, even though the reviews are less kind. It's at 51% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's set around the same time as the first one, just on a different part of the planet. So we're reintroduced to this new world. Uh, in case you've never seen the original and reminded about the invading species and how awful they are. But to me, it was just more gripping. It still uses flashbacks, but the flashbacks, I think, better served the present-day story here because in the first Bird Box, they were telling two stories simultaneously, the story of how we got here and the story of where we're at now. That's not necessarily bad. Lost did that well in every episode. Arrow did it well in every episode. Bird Box did not do it well. I was bored. And this one had excellent cinematography, great performances, and some unexpected twists that added a new layer of significant complexity to this new world. So like the first one, it's not great. 
But I did enjoy it a little bit more than the first one, so I'll give it three couch cushions out of five. Can't remember what I gave the first one. I think two and a half or three, but whatever. Bird Box Barcelona. And hopefully it doesn't uh, have people putting blindfolds on and walking out into traffic or whatever, all the <laughs> crazy stunts that people are doing after that first one. Um, the other thing I watched this week, it was It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which just wrapped its stellar 16th season. Is this a bathroom? Exactly, yes, that's a bathroom. You never told me we had a toilet. It's not a good one. We f***ing cans, Charlie. We are interested in featuring your bar on our show. Sounds kind of cool. What the hell are you doing? I don't know if I want to be on a show where they make us look jerks. I'd hate if they, like, edited it, like, made me look dumb or something. Why is it going off my stomach? Because you have a belly full of nickels. Nice. It might smell a little funky in here, Mr. Malcolm. I did vomit in his car earlier. Oh, perfect. I've broken every single bone in my hand. I'm going to scream now because I can't hold it in, so here we go. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia has somehow become one of the longest-running sitcoms, and it shows no sign of stopping. It's been renewed through 18 seasons on FXX, so we'll be getting it for at least a couple of more years. It began way back in 2005, created by Rob McElhenney, who plays Mac and who recently bought a European soccer team with Ryan Reynolds. His friends, Glenn Howerton, also uh, seen recently in the Blackberry movie, and Charlie Day, who starred in Horrible Bosses and has been funny in many things. Uh, add to the cast, Caitlin Olson who's very funny. She actually is married to McElhenney in real life. And Danny DeVito, who's down for anything in this show, usually the grosser, the better. Collectively, they're the gang. They run a dive bar in what looks like a pretty rough part of Philadelphia, and they get in these weird scheming adventures each week. This season, no exception. They took on a number of current-day issues, as they often do, including inflation and celebrity liquor brands, which featured hilarious cameos by Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul, who the gang only referred to as the dad and the kid for Malcolm in the <laughs> middle <laughs> okay malcolm lots of silliness lots of laughs lots of some pretty gross jokes i often make the mistake of trying to like eat supper while i'm watching and only for them to do something so disgusting it puts me off my appetite but the consistency of the quality of the jokes continues it's really a staggering achievement even the simpsons you know couldn't keep up their pace much more beyond 10 seasons although those seasons had two to three times as many episodes 16 seasons of sunny pretty amazing looking forward to at least two more good stuff in uh, number 16. If you've never seen it, you can catch the first 15 seasons on Disney+. And that's all the time we've got, but next week I want to tell you about a great show on Global that debuts its third season in the first week of August. It's called Departure. I'm getting caught up on season two. So far, it's wild. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.